My name is Craig Jarvis. I'm the lead pastor here at Village Church East, and this is the highlight of my week. I get to come and be with you guys and share God's Word with you. So I'm excited to be able to do that. Happy Father's Day. This is a big day for all you dads uh, or you guys that look after other people's kids. Um, let me tell you a few things about dads. Dads, you're the most important influence in your children's life. The path we choose will powerfully influence our children and even generations after them to come. I've often wondered how many things I do that my grandfather did that I don't even know about. And then I meet somebody that knew my grandfather and they'll say, you remind me of your grandfather. And I didn't even know him that well. It's very interesting how many things we pass on through these bloodlines. It is a joyful and a powerful influence, responsibility that we have to impact our kids for Jesus Christ. We get to see them come alive spiritually, emotionally, physically. We get to see them grow and we get to influence them and how they even lead their families as they get older. And that's why every dad, let me just say up front, needs the Lord Jesus Christ to help them. Because uh, dads can't do this on their own really, really well. But the Lord Jesus Christ gives us the power to be able to do that. And we dads have the, have the ability to instill truth and, truth and, uh, um, and the, the power of God's Word into our kids and see the Holy Spirit bring them to life and rejuvenate them spiritually and, Lord willing, see them come to know the Lord as their Savior and serve Him with their lives. We get to see these little kids change. That is a huge blessing. And uh, sometimes I think, like, that's a lot of weight on my shoulders because I drop the ball a lot. And, uh, but then I think of my own dad, and I think uh, I could count the ways that he dropped the ball, but he was a powerful influence in my life to show me what it meant to serve Jesus Christ. And that's what I carry with me. So there's hope for me, there's hope for you, and there's, there's certainly uh, the promise of Jesus that tells us if we do a good job, dads, in leading our children, growing them up in the way that they would go, that they will not depart from it. And so uh, hats off to all your dads. Keep up the good work. And if you need help with that, making church attendance a priority is a good place to start. So thanks for being here today. Dads and moms included, this is the most difficult part of any relationship we are going to talk about today. If you want to teach your kids how to be successful in life, you cannot do it without passing this barrier that we're going to be talking about today. And if you could teach your kids how to deal with this one concept of life well, they will be incredible citizens, they'll be incredible followers of Christ, they will be incredible soldiers for the cross, examples of Jesus Christ. The story that we talk about today in the life of Jacob is a story of reconciliation, mending broken relationships. A very high calling and a very difficult responsibility. There are truths in Scripture that help us understand how to do this well. And if we follow them, Lord willing, things will come out well. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they crumble. Sometimes we stick ourselves out there hoping that we're doing exactly the right thing. And it is not given back to us by the other party so we do all the right things, hoping for reconciliation. The other person doesn't, and that relationship goes on broken. If I were to ask you how many people in here have broken relationships in their lives, I'm not going to ask you that, but I wonder 
How many hands would go up? This is a very normal, regular thing because our lives are made up of relationships and they don't always work. And sometimes they come crashing down in flames. But I want to tell you one of the blessings of being a follower of Jesus Christ is that we have the ability to in to uh, inject into our relationships this love and grace that is beyond our personal ability to do so. And when we do that, and the Holy Spirit helps us, we have steps in Scripture and examples in Scripture of how reconciliation is possible in any situation. Now let me say that one more time because I know you're sitting there and you don't believe me, but wait until you hear the last story I'm going to tell you today. It's powerful. The power of the Holy Spirit and following God's plans, every single follower of Jesus Christ has the ability to inject principles of godly living that can reconcile any broken relationship. I'll give you this verse. In Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. God reconciled us to himself because we were rebels living in sin. We're going to get to all of that. And because we can be friends of God, God has given us the ability and the responsibility of reconciling this world. The word reconcile means to restore a relationship or to live in harmony. Have you ever heard a good harmony group, like a good barbershop quartet? You like barbershop quartets? All the kids are going, a what? Uh, what, what do they call it now? What's that thing they call it now? The, the, yeah, the acapella group. What's the acapella group that you like? What is it? Yeah, pentatonics. Yeah, all right. You know how they all work? That's Harmony. Reconcile means we have the ability to live in harmony like that. Our relationships exhibit that kind, of, uh, that kind of, of a look. This does not necessarily mean that we're going to all do tail par- tailgate parties together, all right? It doesn't mean that we're all going to be exactly the same and get along with everybody like we do with everybody else. It doesn't mean that we're going to click with everybody else. But what it does mean is we offer love, grace, and prayers for one another. And that is harmony. God's word said how blessed it is for brothers to live together in unity or harmony. To understand how relationships are mended, we need to define some terms. And we have two people that have seriously messed up a relationship that we're looking at. And their names are Jacob and Esau. Now who would you say messed the relationship up first? Jacob, would you all agree with that? Has Esau helped the relationship? No, he has not. And so let's talk about some terms before we go through this, because these two guys are about to meet face-to-face after 20 years. Ministry stages of reconciliation are the same that these guys go through, that we will go through in our relationships with people that have broken off or have have, uh, um, broken relationships with us. First, You go through the step of releasing. You say that I will not let this, whatever it is, situation, whatever it is has broken the relationship, I will not let this 
corrupt me. Because if we don't do this step, the next thing that happens is bitterness. And bitterness is the only poison that eats outside of its own vial. If we don't release, we will turn to bitterness. And most broken relationships stop at this stage. The second step is forgiveness. Forgiveness says, I accept your apology and I will not bring this up again. This is a very difficult step that sets up a truce. You're able to look at somebody and say, I not only am willing to release this pain in my life, I'm willing to talk to you about it and to forgive you for what you've done. Now, they may not ask you for forgiveness, but you're willing to forgive them. I accept your apology, and I'll not bring this up again. This is a very difficult step. Some people stop right here because that's as far as they can go. But the next step is the big one. You think forgiveness is the big one? The next step is the biggest one. The next step is reconciliation. Reconciliation says, let's move forward and be in community or harmony together. Now, this is very, very difficult, and it does not come naturally to us. We naturally hold grudges, true or false. Do you have to try and hold a grudge? It comes pretty naturally, right? We naturally hold grudges. We naturally judge others' actions more than we judge our own. We naturally get offended. This comes natural to us. This step of reconciliation agrees that you will release Whatever you have against this other person or whatever they have against you, you will forgive them and you will agree to coexist with them in harmony. Now let me underline this just for a second. Coexisting in peace and love is non-negotiable for a follower of Jesus Christ. Coexisting in peace and love is non-negotiable for a follower of Jesus Christ. Reconciliation is the reconstructive stage of any relationship. It's the time when you begin to build what has been burned. This does not always equal restored trust. You may not be able to trust the other person like you did before. It does not mean everything's back to normal. It may never get back to normal. It does not mean that you have a restored friendship where you're going to hang out every Friday night together. You may not be able to do that. But it does always equal absence of bitterness a positive disposition, and ongoing demonstrations of kindness to the one who has burned you. That's harsh, isn't it? That step is non-negotiable for every follower of Jesus Christ. And then the final step is the wonderful, beautiful step of restoration. Restoration means it's as if this never happened. This is a beautiful stage, but this may not always be possible in this world. Because sometimes you get burned or consequences are left over that are just not able to be overcome in this world. Restoration is a beautiful thing to see, but it may not always be possible. Reconciliation, however, is always not just possible, but our responsibility. It is a commission of every follower of Jesus Christ to restore relationships. Did you know that? (laughs) This is what God has called us to do. Let me show you a verse, Ephesians 4.32. 
We read this already this morning. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Would you read the next phrase with me, please? As God in Christ forgave you. How should your level of forgiveness be toward others? It should be at the same level as God has forgiven you. Have you ever been able to forgive somebody to that level before? To what level did God forgive you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever, whosoever, your worst enemy, your favorite friend, the worst person in history, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. To what level was God's forgiveness extended? This ultimately high level. We forgive as God forgave us. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, Craig, that's a little harsh. That's really, really hard. Okay, you want to do the Lord's Prayer? You know the Lord's Prayer, right? And forgive us our sins or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We are in the Lord's Prayer asking God to use our standard of forgiveness to apply his standard of forgiveness to us. In fact, Jesus said, if you're not able to forgive people in this world, God will not forgive you in the world to come. This is a very heavy responsibility. It is very difficult. And that's why this is a very hard lesson to do this morning. That's why we fed you first. (laughs) Hopefully this will land well on your heart as the food has in your stomachs. Let me take you to one other passage. This passage reminds me constantly that I'm to give reconciliation my all. Romans 12, 18. Would you read this with me, church? If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Powerful. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I knew a guy who quoted this verse totally in the wrong way on a regular basis. He would say this meant, hey, I tried to make peace. The other person didn't see things my way, so why bother? I'm moving on to the next relationship. I did everything I was called to do, and now I'm washing them away. That is not what this verse means. Live at peace does not mean I did what I had to do to remain peaceful in that situation. Live at peace at peace. Uh, as far as it depends on me, on you, is not I did what I could to change their mind or fix the problem or put up with them, but rather every time I could, I did. Here's the difference. Not I did what I could, but every time I could, I did. Every time I could love, I did. Every time I could give grace, I did. Every time I could insert God's truth, I did in the same way God did for me. Not I did as much as I could, but every time I could in this situation, I did. And God did as much for us as he could do. He gave us his only son. As much as it depends on us, lays the responsibility for reconciliation directly on whose shoulders. As much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men and women. Whose shoulders does that, resp- does that commission lay on? Lays on mine. Not on the reaction of the other person. 
Not on their bad attitude. Not on how bad they've made my life because of their dumb decisions they've made. It has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with me. And now let me take you to one of the most beautiful stories that there is in Scripture. I have been dying to get to this passage. Jacob has wronged a lot of people. Jacob has ticked off, stolen, deceived. Jacob has been a thief. Jacob has burned every relationship. They lay in ashes behind him. He's 90-some years old, and he has nothing to show for his life. Even his closest family, his two wives, his two concubines, and his 11 sons don't like him. He has made no friends in his relationship. Jacob has lived a life saying, I have done everything I had to do to get where I am today, and he had nothing to show for it as far as relationships goes. Last week he meets God face to face, and he fights with God. Do you remember that story? Great story. And God wouldn't let him go. He wouldn't let God go because he realized halfway through that night of fighting that he's fighting somebody special here. And he wouldn't let him go until he blessed him because he was desperate to know God wasn't done with him yet. And so that angel that fought Jacob that night, probably a pre-incarnate Christ, blessed him, put his hand on his hip, and hurt him, and then changed him, and gave him a new name. And every time Jacob waddled on his broken hip, and every time people called him his new name, he remembered the depths he had to go to to change. And so we get to the story today, and the question that we all have is, did he really change? And like God always does, when we go through a moment where he touches our lives, he gives us an immediate opportunity for application. Don't you hate that? It's like you go through something with God and he speaks to you and you, 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 you surrender something to him or you commit something to him or you have a high mountaintop experience with him and as soon as it's over, what does he do? He gives you a chance to fail or succeed. For Jacob, here comes his chance. Keep in mind, he is exhausted from fighting all night. He is wounded in his hip. But the question is, has he changed? Immediately, verse 1, chapter 33 of Genesis reads like this. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming. Here we go. Here's the test. And 400 armed men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. Remember, he was behind them. He put them in front of him so that Esau would have to come through them to get to him. Now, today, there's no breathing room. He has an immediate moment when he looks up and he sees Esau's coming. The sun is rising. He sees Esau. He sees 400 men. And what do you think he thinks is going to happen next? He probably thinks he's dead. Esau, the last thing Esau said is, the next time I see you, you're dead. This is now 20-some years later, and he's thinking, like, have you ever met somebody that stewed in hate for 20 years? Do they get better over time or worse? Worse. 
Look what happens, verse 2. He put the servants with their children in front, and Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. But verse 3 says, he himself went on before them. Do you know what that says? That says that everybody is still in the pecking order. It's like emptying a house if the house is on fire. You take out the most important stuff first, right? And then, like, presumably your family, all right? And then your stuff would go after that. He's got this, this uh, entourage laid up in, with the servants in the front. They can go down easy. And then after that, Leah and her children, because, you know, he didn't like them as much as Rachel and Joseph, the baby, is in the very back. But this Jacob instead of hiding behind, now he weaves his way to the front. He goes on before them, elbowing his way to the front. He puts himself between them and Esau. Looks like Jacob might have changed. Before, Jacob would have been behind them. Now he goes on before them. And not only that, not only now would he be the first one to go down, Look at the way that he approached his brother. He, ba- he was bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Have you ever seen Joseph or Jacob bow before? Have you ever seen any kind of submissive posture from Jacob at all? I have not. Even when Jacob saw the angels going up and down, he did not take a submissive posture. He erected an altar, but he didn't take a submissive posture. This is the first time. He goes in front of his crew and begins to walk alone the distance between his family and Esau. And the whole time he bows himself to the ground, walks a little further, bows himself to the ground, walks a little further, bows himself to the ground. Jacob is giving the alpha wolf his place. He greets Esau with honor. This is this prostate uh, uh, look where you go to the ground is a is a submissive posture where you're giving the other person respect and honor. I think Jacob is expecting justice but praying for mercy. And in this vulnerable position, both on the ground, but also wounded and beaten down from a night of fighting, Jacob makes his way to the front thinking he's going to go down first. And this is one of the most suspenseful moments in the Bible. These next three words read like this. And Esau ran. Now what do you think comes next? He ran to try out his new Jinsu knives. Dice, slice, they cut through bone. You're thinking to yourself, Esau's got it in for Jacob. So Esau comes running toward Jacob. He obviously is weak. He's obviously wounded. He's limping. He's obviously vulnerable bowing to the ground. So Esau runs toward Jacob and thinking in his mind, we're probably thinking Genesis 27, 41, Esau hated Jacob. This was years ago, almost 30 years now, because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said, when the days of mourning for my father are are approaching and past, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Jacob's thinking, I'm dead, but I don't care. And Esau runs toward him. How fast do you think Jacob's blood pressure was flying right about now? Verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. 
Isn't that so good? This is the kicker verse. Because not only did Jacob change the very night before, but over the last 20-some years, almost 30 years, Esau changed. Esau vowed to kill Jacob if he ever saw him again. And now he's waiting, ready to forgive him. What does it take to change a heart like this? By the way, Jacob stole everything Esau had. Esau had every right to slice and dice him right there, and nobody would have cared. His own family wouldn't have cared all that much, except they wouldn't have a guy to protect him anymore. Nobody really gave much love Jacob's way. But Esau comes, and notice the verbs. He embraced him, he fell on his neck, kissed him, and they wept. Esau gives up his need to be right, his need to be restored, his need to be paid back, and he replaces it with a choice to demonstrate love. There's a story I read, it's kind of funny, I don't usually insert these, but it's kind of funny. A married couple was having disagreements over 15 years of marriage, They wanted to make their marriage work, so they agreed on an idea. They would have a bucket, each one of them, and they would label it the fault box. And they would be able to write anything over the next two weeks that ticked them off about the other person. Underwear on the floor, leaving the drawers open, leaving the jelly top off off of the jar, dirty socks not in the hamper, and on and on, all the way through these next two weeks, and they plopped them in the jar At the end of those two weeks, they exchanged the fault boxes. The woman grabbed her fault box, and the guy grabbed husband, grabbed his fault box, and each one was supposed to reflect on how they ticked off the other person over those last two weeks. The husband picked up his and read each one off and reflected on what he had done wrong, and then the wife opened her box and began reading, and each slip read exactly the same. It simply read, I love you. Silly story, but powerful, right? Because this is the way that God chose to forgive us. We were enemies of God, deserving of His wrath. We chose to walk in the disobedience of this world, and only because God loved us did things change. Let me read to you this passage in Ephesians 2, verse 3. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And here it is. Here's the Esau moment. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Our ability to have a relationship with God the Father is only possible because God chose to love us. That is it. There's nothing we did to earn it. There's only a lot of things we did to deserve wrath and to demonstrate that's what we should get. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. The only time God ever runs is when Esau ran. God runs to offer us forgiveness and reconciliation because he chooses to love us rather than judge us. Esau had every right 
to judge Jacob, and nobody would have blinked an eye. And God has every right to judge us. There's a song by Phillips, Craig, and Dean. I love the song. If I could play it for you, I would. But the chorus goes, The only time I ever saw him run was when he ran to me, took me in his arms, held my head to his chest, and said, My son's come home again. Looked in my face, wiped the tears from my eyes. With forgiveness in his voice, he said, Son, do you know I still love you? It caught me by surprise. It dropped me to my knees when God ran. This was a mutual change that occurred to these two guys. Jacob changed. One desperate, Esau changed. One desperate to be forgiven and one desperate to forgive. Verse 5. Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children and he said, Who are all these people with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Remember, Esau's blessing included all of this too. He could have taken all this back. Jacob is saying, no, this, this is all the things that God has given to me all through, through time, through, through these last 30, almost 30 years. In verse 6 it says, Then the servants drew near and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last Joseph and Rachel came near and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I'm meeting? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord, of you. But Esau said, verse 9, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. One desperate to be forgiven, one desperate to forgive. Isn't that an amazing story? And Esau could have said, Okay, I take it all. I'll take it all. Because it was mine to begin with, and you stole it from me. But he said, no, Jacob, I have enough. And Jacob said, no, Esau, God has given me all this. Can you see the, 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 the armor falling off of these two men? The releasing of rights. Esau's face t- tells Jacob everything he needs to know. The rage is gone. Now it's replaced with love for his brother, And I think Esau realized something profound has happened over these last 20-some years. He thought, I might have been the one betrayed, but Jacob's problem was with God and not with me. There are three powerful takeaways from this story. And here they are. And these will apply to everyone in this room. One of these will apply. Number one, if I'm Jacob, can I change? And number two, if I'm Esau, can I forgive? If I'm the one that needs to come back, can I change to that point where I'm willing to ask for forgiveness to be so desperate for it that I don't make any demands for coming home to rebuild the relationship? And if I'm Esau, have I been wrong to the point where I'm just not able to forgive? Is it possible to forgive? Let me give you some so what's. These are, these are so good. You might have to take a picture of these if you want to, but true reconciliation in the world is rare. But in the kingdom, it's normative behavior. Let me say that again. True reconciliation like this in the world is rare, but in the kingdom, it is normative. It is normal behavior. We are desperate for reconciliation because God is desperate to reconcile with us. And so here's some things that truly repentant people have in common. Number one, they deal with their sins against God first. That's when Jacob wrestled with God. You ever think of this? 
like how weird it is that when Jesus was on the earth, <laughs> when he was doing his ministry, he would meet up with these people that needed to be forgiven of their sins, and he would say, listen, what you need to do is you need to ask me for forgiveness. Like, you've, Jim, you've sinned against Sally. So Jim, ask me for forgiveness. That's crazy. No, Jim needs to ask Sally for forgiveness, but not with Jesus. That's not the way it starts. With Jesus Christ and life in the kingdom, your first offense is always against the one who loves you most, and that is Jesus Christ. The one that we ask for forgiveness first is the one we've offended the most. And you have really may have offended people beside you, but the one visit you've got to make first is your visit with God. Deal with our sin against God first. This, this highlights a few principles for one. For us, it helps us prepare for the next step. It exposes our hearts. When I'm asking for forgiveness for the way that I've treated somebody else or the way that I've offended God in my relationship with somebody else, I'm saying, God, you're right and I'm wrong. Search my heart. Let me know if there's anything in here that has led me to the place where I'm this kind of a dork with the people that I meet. Help me expose this for me. Number two, it demonstrates our proper place. We are subservient to God. It demonstrates, number three, his proper place. He is the final judge of all sin. It it admits, number four, our ongoing problem, which is sin, pride, selfishness. And number five, it it requests supernatural assistance to continue in the process. In other words, when we ask God for forgiveness first, we are rightly putting God where he deserves in this whole context. He is the one that we offend first. When I discipline my kids growing up, they will tell you, if it was a serious discipline where we had to go to a room and we had to talk through the whole issue, I would always ask them, have you confessed your sins to God? Yes, I have. Then let's talk about discipline. And after the discipline was over, then they would have to go talk to whoever they offended. The first one we offend is God, and that's where we must start processes of reconciliation. Number two, we approach the offended with self-reflective humility. Jacob prepared gifts to give Esau. We didn't cover that whole, uh, a, a lot in the passage, but he covered prepared gifts. And those gifts were meant to bribe Esau so Esau wouldn't kill him with his new Jinsu knives. But instead of being now a bribe, he turns them into gifts. He says, Esau, these are all yours. Repentant people go, they meet face to face, and they always do so with a real deep humility. Number three, they measurably make right what they have wronged. Jacob is making right what he made wrong, no matter the personal cost. The next verse, by the way, reads like this in verse 11. Jacob says to Esau, please accept my blessing, what I brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Esau has just said, I have enough. Jacob now is saying, I have enough. Can you believe this is even coming out of Jacob's mouth? Jacob never had enough. Jacob always wanted more. And after his night wrestling with God, he comes to the one person he has offended most on this planet. And he says to him these words that you would have never heard from Jacob before. You know what, Esau? I have enough. You take back everything I've stolen from you. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Isn't that great? Repentance means more than admitting. It means rectifying 
wrongs. Number four, repentant people don't attach conditions to their repentance. They trust the Lord for the outcome. What if Esau took everything Jacob had and he rewound the clock to nothing, what he had before he met Esau? That would have been okay with Jacob because the most important thing for Jacob at this point in his life was a restored relationship with Esau. <clears throat> Jacob didn't know if Esau would take everything, and he didn't care. He just left it to God. Repentance doesn't mean we come home with a list of things, demands from the other person. There are things may, we may agree not to do anymore. There are things we may agree never to talk about again. But it's never a list of demands. It's always with an extremely humble heart, no conditions. That's repentant people. Here's the things truly forgiving people have in common. Truly forgiving people like Esau are ready to forgive on a dime. This is so key. Esau did not run to Haran to make things right. He took 400 armed men with him. Why did he do that? Because he didn't trust Jacob. He didn't know if he changed or not. So he was wise. He wanted to make sure that he was, he, he was covered. He was skeptical that this Jacob in the last 20 years was the same guy. But even with those 400 men with him, he was ready to give forgiveness at a moment's notice. I think that's awesome. Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. There was no taking Jacob's face and shoving it in the dirt and saying, remember this, remember this, remember that. He's ready to forgive on a dime. Forgiving people realize how much they've been forgiven in life. And if we truly understand how much God has forgiven us, we have a huge reservoir to draw from to understand how we can forgive others. Number two, forgiving people are prepared for the worst. This is key. When we forgive, we don't release people so that they can do what they've done to us, to others. This is not an excuse to let bad behavior continue. Forgiveness has to be applied to a revealed wound. It's a salve that only can be applied when the wound is revealed. And when somebody comes to us and asks for forgiveness, we are ready to forgive. We hold it in open hands. So that when they approach us, it is there to release. But it only can be applied to an open wound. Let me ask you a very difficult question. Before you answer it, think about this question. Does God forgive everyone? It's interesting, isn't it? Does God allow everybody to go to heaven? No. The key factor in receiving the forgiveness of God is that we must come to Him and request it. We must come to Him and admit our, our failures and admit who we were, enemies and rebels against God. But God's forgiveness applies all the time to every person. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in him should never perish but have eternal life but for those that never come to him in humility and requesting forgiveness there is a judgment day and while god loves them that judgment will be applied for all eternity when we forgive people we forgive people not by leaving our brains at the door we don't allow them to continue bad behavior but we forgive them the minute they ask for it and we wisely distribute that forgiveness to all who ask. 
They may need to go through counseling. You may need to help them through a situation. You may need to even walk them through a painful situation that applies to you. But you're willing to do it because forgiveness and reconciliation is the main goal. Your acts of forgiveness may be rejected or or reviled outright, but that never changes our offer. Number three. Forgiving people are satisfied with reconciliation alone, not conditions. Reconciliation alone is the prize. We don't need to see the other person hurt more. Number four. Forgiving people are willing to start with personal faults first. No need to manufacture faults. Just be honest about the part you played in the problem. You don't need to say, well, I was this and I was that and start making up stories, but you may have to add to the conversation by saying, I played a part in this by doing blank. Truly forgiving people are willing to admit with personal faults first. It's a good list. Last thing I want you to know is this. Reconciliation, like we're talking about this morning, requires supernatural assistance. God has every reason to lay out all of our faults before us and judge us for them all, but he does not. He offers free forgiveness to all who asks. There's never an instance when he brings up our past when we ask him for forgiveness. In fact, he throws our sin as far as the east is from the west. They can be found no more. They are in the deepest sea. To forgive God's way, this kind of way that God forgives us, we need his help. Let me read you this passage of scripture one more time. 2 Corinthians 5.18 All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to us himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ God was recon- uh, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Church, you are God's ambassadors of reconciliation. This is non-negotiable. Now, all of you are thinking about relationships in your lives that you think, how can I reconcile this? How can I make this right? The wounds are too deep. How can I do this? I'm here to tell you, you can't on your own. You gotta pray. You gotta pray constantly. You gotta ask God for doors where the conversation can start. You gotta walk in there humbly. You gotta walk in there with forgiveness, arms open, hands open. You gotta be an ambassador for reconciliation. And if you've offended somebody, you gotta go to them and make it right. You gotta say it's not, the, the point is not that I'm right. The point is this relationship must be made right. And that's the most important thing. You ever heard of a woman named Corrie ten Boom? Corrie ten Boom and her family had prisoners, uh, or had, um, had Jews in their walls during the Second World War. When the Nazis would come around and bang on the doors and search houses to see if there's any Jews being hidden in there, Corrie ten Boom and her family had cored out a part of their wall and they had brought in family after family after family and they had kept them in these small little spaces between their walls fed them kept them alive but it wasn't long before they were found out and Corrie ten Boom and her family were arrested 
and they were taken to Ravensbrück, which was a concentration camp. Corey describes incredible torture that went on there. Her sister, Betsy, was a very, very, her best friend in life. She and Betsy got put in the same barracks. And over time, as they were malnourished, as they were beaten, as they were tortured, over time, Corey says in her book, The Hiding Place, if you ever want to read a book, it's an amazing book, The Hiding Place being the space between the walls. Corrie ten Boom tells us she watched her sister Betsy shrivel up into nothing but bones and skin. And she hated her captors for it. But it was Betsy's faith that kept Corrie strong. And as they ate their maggots in the evenings, because that's all they could find to eat, it was Betsy that reminded Corrie of all they had to be thankful for. Corrie made it out alive but the rest of her family perished in those camps. After the war, Corrie ten Boom went back to Germany to preach the gospel, to share God's love with a group of people that had been broken by the world and driven to their knees. She did these tours several times to a land she's called desolate and bombed mercilessly. Germany had lost the war and now struggled with how to cope with knowing what they had done. How would they live now that the world has seen what they have done, has found the concentration camps? How could they live in this civilized world? Corey said after each service she did, people would stand up in silence, grab their coats, and walk carefully and quietly outside the room. In 1947, Corey went to Munich to speak on the subject of forgiveness, and it was there that she saw him. He was a heavy-set man with a gray cloak, cloak clutching in his hand his hat. And when the service was over, this heavy-set man made his way through the chairs to the back of the room to see Corey. And all she could see when she saw this man was the same man in a blue uniform and a soldier's cap with a skull and the crossbones on the front and a whip dangling from his belt. This was her captor. She recognized him from the camp at Ravensbrück. He did not recognize her. The past rushed back to her mind, she writes, the huge room with the harsh overhead lights, the piles of dresses and shoes, middle of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this same man, Betsy's frail body in front of her, And now that same man stood in front of her just years later with his hand thrust out to her and said this, a fine message, Fräulein, how good it is that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And she writes in her memoirs these words, and I who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness fumbled in my pocketbook rather than taking his hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? And he said, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, again the hand came out, Fräulein, will you forgive me? And Corrie ten Boom says in her memoirs, I simply could 
not. She stood there, someone whose sins had been forgiven every day. She could not forgive this man. Betsy died in that place. How could she erase the terrible, slow death of her sister simply by the asking? How could she forgive and not lay out all the ways this man has personally caused her torture for so many years? She said, his hand held out in front of her for seconds, but for her, what seemed to be hours. And she wrestled with the most difficult thing she had to do. Jesus, help me, she writes. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. Jesus, you supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth started to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried. I forgive you with all my heart. Forgiveness is the act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. We can will to forgive, and God will bring the feeling. I want to leave you with one more thing. The greatest joy in this message that's very hard to deliver this morning is this. God forgives all those who come to him in repentance, no holds barred. You don't need to be reminded of your past any longer. You only need to know that the son has sacrificed himself on that cross. And when he did, his blood washed your sins away. There's no need to make a list of your past failures. There's no need to remember your sins any longer. There's only one person alive, one entity alive that will remind you of your past, and it is not God, it is Satan. Satan will remind you of who you were, but God will remind you of who you are. God's standard includes forgiving to never again hold the offense against the other person, ever. Satan will bring it up, but God never will. I love this verse in 1 Corinthians 13, 5. It reminds us of how God loves us and how we should love one another. It simply says this, love keeps no record of wrongs. If you've asked God for his release, you are forgiven. And if you are forgiven, you are free indeed. Let's pray. God, we revel in the forgiveness that you give us. We love it. We drink it in. We're in awe of the grace that we are given every day this Grace that even though we continue to drop the ball and offend you, that you continue to forgive us. And so, Father, as we prepare our hearts for communion, may you sink into our hearts the truth of this message that you run to us to forgive us. You run to anyone who asks you for forgiveness. And when you forgive, you forgive absolutely. So, Father, help us to be ambassadors with that kind of reconciliation to a world that desperately needs it. And help us to be willing and able through the power of your Holy Spirit to reconcile with those who have offended us. May we never one day stand before you and have to defend our inept ability or inept will to go to others and make things right. 
Help us to ask for forgiveness and help us to distribute forgiveness just as you have done with us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're going to finish with communion. I know we're a little bit over time, but that's because you ate so much food, so I hope you'll forgive us for this. But the reason we finish with communion is because we want to make sure that the gospel is presented clearly in every message. And the reason that I stand on the floor, and whoever does this stands on the floor, is because you need to know we are all in the same boat. God has forgiven all of us when we come to him and ask for forgiveness. And his forgiveness is even more profound than Corrie ten Boom forgiving the soldier that had abused her. His forgiveness for us goes beyond that because every sin that we've committed in our lives is an active, rebellious moment against the one who loves us. But I want you to know one thing about God is that not only is he willing to forgive, but like Esau, he runs to do it. And if you're here this morning and you have a hard time sleeping at night because of the stuff from your past, you need to know a God is willing and ready and can't wait to run to you and forgive you for all your sins. Past, present, future. This is the kind of God we serve. But that forgiveness is not free. For us it is. For us we don't have to do anything but simply receive it. But it costs God his only son. Jesus Christ died on the cross to shed perfect blood because your blood and my blood were tainted. That can't cover sins. Only one person who ever walked this planet had perfect blood. Only one candidate. And that was Jesus Christ. And when he went to the cross and shed his blood, that's why he did it. His blood had to be shed to cover my sins, your sins, and all the sins of those who would ask for it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I hope that that message has been loud and clear today. If you'd like to deal with that afterwards, this prayer, prayer banner right over here, we're going to have people standing over there. We would love to pray with you and help you know that you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to know you're forgiven, and to know you're free. Regardless of what happens next, that's where you have to start. So if that's you, if you've never given your life to Jesus or you're just not sure where your relationship is with him, we would just ask that you take the plate and pass it to the person next to you uh, don't partake. It's not because we want to make an example of you. It's just because we don't want you to have to say something that's not true for you yet. But it can be. It can be today. For those of you that are gathered here, I remind you that the juice represents the blood of Jesus and the cracker represents the body of Jesus. These were necessary things. The necessary price. Paid so that our sins could be forgiven. And when we drink and when we eat together, we are declaring together as a family, we believe this is what it took for us to have a relationship with the Holy God. And we use it as a time of thanksgiving, of remembrance, and reflection. So I invite you to take communion today. If you're from another church, take communion with us. We love people taking communion with us. Um, we're going to give you a moment before we do that. When the, when the cups and the juice are passed, 
What we do here is we stand after you take your juice or your cup. We stand because it's easier to praise God while we sing. When we're standing, it seems like more engaging. So we're going to stand. So when you get your juice and your, your bread, stand, sing with us, sing with the band. And then at the end, I'll come up when the band is done. I'll come up and read a passage of scripture. We'll eat and drink together. And then we'll find out who won the contest. But that's, that's for later. Before we do any of that, I'm going to give you a moment I'm praying to God. This has been a really, you wouldn't believe the amount of hours I put into this message. It's really simple, but it's so deep. So I want to give you a moment. Would you just take a moment and pray to God silently and ask God how to apply the message you've heard to your life? Would you do that, please? that you would run to any of us. If there's one message that we should do on a regular basis, that might be it. Father, that you would run to any of us. You would hold us in your arms. That truth drops us to our knees, that you would run. But I thank you that you loved us that much, that you were willing to give your only son so that sin could be washed away, the barrier could be broken down, and you could run to us. Truth is, you chase us on a regular basis. If we were to list all the ways your grace has impacted and visited our lives, even this past week, we would be astounded. You are good to us. Forgive us for for not seeing your goodness on a regular basis. Forgive us for not seeing your pursuit of us for what it is. Help us, Father, to be more aware of that even after studying the story of Esau and Jacob, their reconciliation. Thank you for the example that these guys finally have given of what it lives to live a redeemed life. May we do so in this world as your ambassadors of reconciliation so others can look at us and say, that's what reconciliation should be like. In this way, Lord, help us to change the world. In Jesus' name. Amen.